Hey, welcome to Echo Church. My name's J.D. Uh, Partain. I tell you what was really a pleasure for me uh, this, this weekend on Saturday. We took Peter uh, out to, to lunch. And the people who decided, you know, to eat lunch with us at the time at the restaurant uh, included the Blakes and then also the Benjamins and the Stewarts as well. But somewhere in that transition, Peter came back and started referring to me as John David. Which I, which I thought was great. My, my real name is John David, but everyone calls me JD, except if you grew up with me, and that's why I think it's kind of fun. I would go with either way, but uh, I, anyway. Um, you're here on a very special day. This is a day where I told our church we're going to close out a series that we're in called The People of God. But I've had so many people say, well, is Peter going to speak? Is Peter going to preach? And so because of that, um, I went ahead and, and caved in and started talking with him about an idea that, uh, that we're going to follow through with this morning. And it's going to be a little bit different. We're going to have kind of an interview style of, of, of presentation, and I'm going to welcome him up to the stage in, in just a little while. Um, we may play it by ear and see if there is any time for possibly some, some question and answer, but we're just going to play it by ear and, and see how that goes. Um, but let me just say this real quick. Regarding uh, who we are, uh, I... I I like to refer to our name simply because I think it's important for us to keep the vision of what we're doing with this church uh, at the forefront of our minds, right? We're called Echo. Uh, for those of you who might be wondering why, um, here's the brutal, honest truth. You are not the source of your joy. You're not the source of your love. You're not the source of your peace. You are actually a reflection, a resonation of the one who created you. He created you in such a unique way that you get to have this thing called the Imago Dei, which is actually a Latin phrase that means the image of God. When he created you, he created you in his image, which means you have these characteristics. He's even given you a measure of sovereignty over this, over this earth, um, and he is a sovereign Lord. And so if that's true, if we really are an echo and uh, the image of God, then how do we allow that? to land here on this earth? Do we just listen to sermons? You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work really hard and I'm going to come up with a great sermon. You get to sit here. You get to just drink it in. Later, you can think about it. You can amen or you can get angry. It doesn't matter. But then what? So this church is about the then what? Because if you are an echo, you are going to be living out the principles that we, that we talk about. And so part of the DNA of this church has been, well, what does that look like? What does it look like for you as the people of God to love others? What does it look like for you as the people of God to have a strange, extraordinary peace, even in the midst of the storm? What does it look like for you as the people of God to be courageous and to go into places that few other people are willing to go? That is the essence of this church. We are not just about Sunday. We are also about what it means to have your ministry, your purpose lived out through Jesus Christ Monday through Saturday. Paul is up here and he's playing the guitar. You should talk to Paul about some of the work that he's done. He's actually a minister for, or a pastor for Big Sky Church. It's the most unique church I've ever, ever encountered because he's on the streets. You want to go into the mess? Talk to this man here. He walks among the streets and prays over people. It doesn't matter who they are. He'll walk up to him. He's like, you want some prayer? <laughs> then you never know what's going to happen right? So that's kind of, yeah, <laughs> so that's sometimes. So that's kind of the essence of, of, of what we're doing as, as the people of God. So we've talked about a number of those things, faith, work, courage, peace, relationship. Last week we talked about prayer, 
And I spoke about prayer and I spoke about the fact that you might have the ability to change the mind of God. I've had all sorts of different interesting, I was going to say arguments, let's just say conversations with other pastors about does humanity, has God given humanity the capability to change the mind of God? I believe he has. I mean, why do we pray? When, when you pray, what are you doing? You're asking God for something, right? Jesus talks about it all the time. I'm not going to go into that sermon. You can listen to the podcast uh, from last week. But we talked about a couple things, the power of God, the accessibility of God. But there was one question, the one burning question that um, kept coming back to me, and I, I forgot to address it. And so I thought I would address it now, just at the beginning, right before we, we dive into our today's session. And that is, what about when we pray over food? Like, what are the rules regarding when you go out to eat somewhere and you're supposed to pray over food? What are you supposed to do? Well, John Christ has a few things to say about that. Today, we're talking about pre-meal prayer. Very confusing subject. A lot of people don't know when to pray, what to pray for, how to pray, who prays. Hey, do you want me to, should I pray? You want to, should we pray? I don't know if, all very confusing. We're going to cover it all today. Let's get started. Chips and salsa. Sometimes they bring it to the table before you're even seated. There's no need to pray for that. Lots of people wonder about appetizers. Do you pray for them? Do you not pray for them? No prayer is necessary for an appetizer if you have entrees coming out later. Salad. That is the most confusing thing on the prayer continuum. If it's a side salad or an appetizer salad, no need for prayer there. Now, if it's a main course salad or you're bringing it out with the rest of everyone else's meal, that then is going to require some kind of prayer. But I put that kind of in a separate category. For the most part, when you're thinking about salads, just remember this. If it requires dressing, it doesn't require a blessing. Do I pray for coffee? <laughs> no. Are you a psychopath? No one wants to be next to the person at Starbucks that's praying over a latte, you weirdo. Soup. Do you pray for soup? Do not pray for soup. It's only bowl-related soups. Anything smaller than that is always off the hook. I like to say if it comes in a cup, no need to lift up. Everyone knows if you order a hamburger, that's going to require prayer. But if you order sliders, that does not require prayer. It's a little glitch in the system a lot of people are not aware of. Potato skins, no prayer. Baked potato, prayer. Ask any Bible-believing Christian, they're going to have a different policy on fries. Some say never eat the fries. Some say eat as many as you want. Here's the policy on fries. Up to three fries is acceptable to eat prior to the prayer. That brings us to dessert. Always a very confusing situation. A lot of times people go out to a show, go to a movie. Hey, should we grab some dessert afterward? Yeah, let me get the creme brulee. I love cheesecake. Ugh. You don't need to pray for that because you've already prayed for your meal earlier in the night. Do you hold hands before you pray? That depends on your situation. If it's a personal family gathering, some close-knit Bible study of some sort, sure, a hold hand wouldn't be uncomfortable. Now, if you're on a Tinder date, that might throw off the mood a little bit. Most of the confusion surrounding pre-meal prayer comes from when to actually pray. Let me just say, on behalf of waiters all over the world, please pray when your waiter is not there. There's nothing worse than a waiter coming out with two full arms of fajitas and you're over there mid-prayer at Jabez. Like, what are you doing? Last but certainly not least, who at the table volunteers to lead the prayer. Lots of people say the man should lead the we're, prayer. Why is that? I'm not sure. Oh, I thought you were kind of at that. Maybe we should get that <laughs> Yeah, there you go. He's going to pray. 
No, so uh, I, I did want to sort of lighten the mood before we head into today's subject. Peter is here from uh, Equip Ministries, and back in 2017, um, the youth of this church led by Joe and, well, a whole bunch of different leaders, even Fish and Megan were there. It was amazing, and we, we, we took these kids across the United States, eventually down to Nashville, Tennessee, to a thing called Impact, which is a week-long camp for youth. And while we were there, they had um, different sessions for the adult leaders, and Peter was, hap- was there. And, and he was speaking at the time. Um, and I, th- I think I'm going to have him sort of uh, introduce you know, himself. In, well, I don't want to steal his thunder. I'm trying to figure out how to introduce this. He, essentially, he said, you know, he's a gay Christian. Now, that right there is, it might set off some alarms for some of you, but he explains what that actually means. And when we were there at that particular conference, I was. At that time, we were already working with different people in the LGBT community center right here in Missoula. We were filled with all sorts of questions, and we were looking for clarity. And so I, I sat with Peter at a Starbucks, and I said, okay, you got to help me here. Like, what are, you know, all these different things. And he was very easy to talk to, and I was like, you know what? we got to get him to echo. And so I, I just I thank God that we have had him here, not just to speak up here, but he has been working with this church for the past month where he has a workshop on a Saturday, and we talk about the subject of what does it mean if you are somebody who experiences same-sex attraction to be in the family of God. There are so many different questions, difficult things to discuss, and so I love the fact that Peter has the courage to come into these contexts of church and speak with the leaders, but speak with the congregation about these uh, particular issues. And so what I would like to do is this. I'm going to, um, to welcome him up here. And what we're going to do is we're going to have sort of a, a question and answer type of thing. So would you please uh, welcome him warmly from uh, all the way from Nashville. Um, Let's go ahead. I'm just going to go ahead and, and offer a word of prayer, and then we're going to sit down and just dive right into things. So, gracious God, Father, I thank you for this man. I thank you for his heart. I thank you for what you have done with him in terms of uh, the, everything from the education to the spiritual journey to the ways in which um, he has perhaps struggled with different chapters of his life, but then, Lord, the lessons that have come from that. And, Lord, I just ask that you stir the spirit within him Allow him to speak your words. Lord, be with our conversation today. Lord, be with our church today. Allow us to have open hearts, open minds. Allow us to have courage to talk about the difficult aspects of humanity and this culture that we live in. Just be with us, and may you be glorified from what comes out of this conversation. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, you, you, you got that one? Are you, are you good? Ah, oh, now it's green. That's go. how that works. So All we cheated right. a little bit. He let me know what questions he was going to ask. <laughs> so I, I do have a little bit of what I'm going to say written down. I do. Uh, because these are important questions, and I want to make sure I answer carefully. Um, so if you see me looking down at this, that's why. So. Right. So the first question is this. And uh, I think it's one of those questions that most of us, probably most of us have in the back of our mind. As we're talking about what it means, okay, to live out um, a lifestyle of singleness, a lifestyle of, of celibacy. In this particular culture, in an over-sexualized culture, it's difficult as Christians, right? 
as difficult as, as, as straight, can I say straight Christians, who are trying to raise up, especially a father like myself, I'm trying to raise up my kiddos in such a way where I'm really hoping and wanting them to be celibate until they are married. And, you know, that could be, who knows how long that could be, right? And, until they are married. And just that journey alone becomes challenging. And then you'll come in to this church and you'll talk about lifelong celibacy and you'll say it in such a way that uh, it sounds like it's possible, right? But I'm, I'm really curious. I mean, is it, um, is it really fair to suggest that people should consider lifelong celibacy? Yeah, so I think that's a, a really reasonable question. And the question of the viability of celibacy and that celibacy isn't very workable in a lot of our churches, I think is one of the strongest arguments for a progressive sexual ethic. It's one of the strongest arguments for a, a belief that, of course, God would bless a same-sex marriage in the same way that he would bless a, um, an opposite-sex marriage. And so I think it's something that we need to think about carefully. Um, yeah, if we don't really believe that celibacy is good for straight people, then why are we offering it to gay people? If gay kids grow up in the church hearing their parents mourn their single friends who can't seem to get married, um, and if marriage is said to be the only path for faithful Christians, then why do you think gay Christians would be excited about celibacy? So uh, I think in some ways gay Christians are kind of the canary in the coal mine when it comes to uh, American Christians' theology of sexual stewardship. Um, I think American Christians have been thinking poorly about a sexual stewardship for, for decades. Um, and then that becomes most evident in the lives of gay Christians who are trying to steward that according to a traditional sexual ethic, a belief that God calls everyone to celibacy or marriage with someone of the opposite sex. Um, and I think it points to a bigger problem. And that bigger problem is that we as Christians idolize romance. Uh, we, we've, we've gotten that from the culture. Um, and we seem to offer marriage as the solution to loneliness. But that's only part of God's answer in Scripture. Uh, you know, God's answer to loneliness is intimacy with God and intimacy in the body of Christ. And many of you are married, and many of you will get married, and that's still a beautiful, great part of God's design for how a lot of us will find family. But it's not the only way. And Paul and Jesus have some pretty uh, great things to say about uh, celibacy and about lifelong celibacy. So... Are we going to take their words seriously? I think it's a really important question for churches to ask. Um, and, uh, and, and, and then even, even if we say yes to that question, there's the practical question of, well, then how do we actually become churches where people could thrive in celibacy? Um, and so I want to share a couple of those and then why it matters that we do that well. So I think the first is um, we've got to be teaching children and teens how to think theologically about their sexual stewardship. We've got to talk about how the Bible talks about celibacy and that that is a good and beautiful thing um, because children and teens are not going to think about that as being an option unless they hear us talk about it and talk about what Scripture has to say about it and what the purposes of it are and how we do that well. Um, second, I, I think we've got to help teens and people in their 20s and beyond discern what they're called to. You know, ask God, God, do you want me to be celibate, single for a lifetime, or do you want me to, to marry? Um, listen, I think the Bible makes clear that our preference of whether we marry or stay single doesn't really matter. 
that what matters is God's preference for whether we are to be single or we are to get married. Um, so I think we all need to approach that open-handedly. Um, ask God, God, what do you have for me? What have you called me to? And then over time, if you become convinced that God's calling you to, calling you to something that's not your preference, maybe we should ask God to change our hearts so that we'll desire the things for ourselves that he desires for us. I know that's hard to hear, but again, if we're not telling that to everybody, you can't tell that to just gay people. Um, third, I think we've got a model thriving in celibacy. Um, you know, children need to see people committed to celibacy, leading in our churches, and finding really deep relationships still in the church while being celibate so they could believe that that would be a good possibility for them. So that's really important. Um, I think fourth, we've got to help celibate people find family in the body of Christ. I don't think celibacy is a call to loneliness for the sake of the gospel. It's still a call to family and community. So how do we do that? You know, uh, one way maybe is you stay connected to your biological family. As you, as you grow older, maybe you choose to live with siblings or you choose to live with cousins and you're a part of that family and that life and helping them raise their kids and a part of that system. So maybe that's one way. Um, another way is being knit into other nuclear families that maybe you're not related to. Maybe that's through sharing meals with them. Maybe that's through um, going on vacations with them or doing holidays with them or maybe even living with them. I've got a couple in Nashville that I'm closest to and I seriously considered moving in with them and doing life with them and helping them raise their kids. Um, so that's an option. And then I think a third option that that's, that's we need to really consider is helping single people kind of make families of their own. Intentional Christian communities of maybe just people committed to celibacy or maybe a mix of married people and people committed to celibacy. Um, but we need to help people do that. Um, I'm a part of kind of a startup in Nashville of men who we feel called to celibacy by God and we're exploring what would it look like for us to do family together, to commit to being family for each other so we know who we're going to have dinner with at night. And we know who's going to pick us up from the airport when we land. And we know who has committed to, to, to loving myself well as I've committed to loving them well. So yeah, so I think fourth, we've, we've got to help celebrate people find family. And then I think fifth, um, we've got to celebrate uh, the lives, the callings of celibate people. Yeah. Um, Mother's Day, Father's Day, anniversaries, marriages, engagement parties, baby showers, all of those celebrate the vocation of marriage. What do we have that celebrates the vocation of celibacy? If we think that that's good and valuable, we need some ways to mark and celebrate those lives. So, uh, so I think those are the five ways that churches can learn to do this better. Um, but even then, even if we do those things, I think it's unlikely that our churches will be places where people like me could thrive in celibacy unless there's five 10% of straight Christians who accept their call to celibacy and are doing that alongside with me. And until there's a meaningful number of straight Christians who are accepting a call to celibacy and doing that well, the church is not going to be a place where I could thrive in celibacy. Um, so get busy. Particularly y'all who are straight and who are single and maybe you assume you're going to get married, ask God maybe if he has different plans. Because I need some, some companions on this journey. Um, obviously, I live in Nashville, so we couldn't be like direct companions, but, um, but from a distance, we can definitely support each other. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, so uh, I think the celibacy question is really important. Yeah. And if we're going to offer celibacy to gay people, we've got to be offering it to straight people and mean right. it. Right, absolutely. Yeah. Um, there is one holiday, by the way. It's the 4th of Which July. One? Oh, is that right? Freedom. Oh, there you go. Um, <laughs> there you go. Uh, that was off script. Uh, so one of, the things that, um, one of the things that I love about Peter, and, and w for those of you who were uh, at the workshop that we had yesterday, I think you can relate to this, is um, he speaks from a very personal level, from his own story. And one of the things that he, um, that he spoke on was, you know, what it means as, as a gay man or as a, a man that has same-sex attraction, what that feels like, perhaps. And he said, you know, when I see a beautiful woman, she's attractive. But there's no sense of magnetism that necessarily pulls me to her in the same way that I might find a man attractive. There's like a, a magnetism that, 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 that pulls me there. And he repeatedly has pointed out, you know, I have no control of that. It's not like I chose, you know, one way or the other. One of the things that you talked about, though, is this idea of a progressive sexual ethic, which I think you, you might need to, to, to clarify or, or define sure. a little bit. But let's, let's just say, though, that if you were to have a more progressive sexual ethic, and in the sense that you have that magnetism, right, towards someone of the same sex, wouldn't it just be easier to adapt the, the progressive sexual ethic mm -hmm. and then just hook up with a man and get married? I mean, it just seems like an, an, an easier pathway or an, uh, the easier pathway being, well, I could have this sexual ethic instead and it allows me the, the ability or the freedom to, to have the partner that I want. Yeah, I, and I get that question often because I think increasingly we have kind of churches and, and Christians that, um, where that's normal, you know? And, and I think there's, there's some good fruit of that being normalized in a sense that the church felt like a place where LGBT people could never go. And at least they feel welcome in those churches. Um, but yeah, I don't think marriage with a man is God's best for me. And it would seem easier if, if that was God's best for me. So how do I deal with that? How do I, um, how do I kind of stay on the path I'm, I'm on? So, I, mean, I think I shared last time that when I do look at the lives of my gay friends who are stewarding their sexualities according to a traditional sexual ethic, who believe that they're called to either celibacy or marriage with someone of the opposite sex, I don't see very good fruit of that path. They struggle with loneliness. They struggle with sin. And this affects their relationship with God and seems to hold them back from being able to do the kingdom work that they're called to. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with we just, what we just talked about when it comes to celibacy and not being very viable in our churches. So we're not doing that too great as a church, you know, and that's some of what I talked about last time. How can we do that better as a church and be a place where people can thrive according to a traditional sexual ethic? But I'll have to say that I also see bad fruit of a progressive sexual ethic, of, of, of walking out of belief that God would bless a same-sex marriage in the same way he blesses an opposite-sex marriage. And I just can't convince myself that it's true. And so let me share with you a little bit about both of those, kind of why I can't get myself there, because it certainly would be easier if I could get myself there. So here's the bad fruit I see. Um, a lot of my gay Christian friends um, eventually, um, oh, there you go. That's really loud. Um, some of my gay Christian friends, when they adopted a progressive sexual ethic, a couple years down the road, 
the fruit I saw of that was um, they stopped believing in God. It's really loud. And I just said something really hard. So, yeah, we're good. Let me repeat it. Yeah, so um, some of the bad fruit I see is when my gay friends adopt a progressive sexual ethic, down the road, I see them lose their faith in God. And, and I don't wish that upon them. I don't want them for them that for them, but that's the pattern I see. So maybe they start out believing that there's some kind of acrobatics we can do with Scripture to read the Scripture in a certain way that maybe it supports same-sex marriage. But most of them, after a couple of years, say, okay, I just got to be honest. The Bible probably says what we think it said for 2,000 years. But I'm really convinced that God is still a God who would be for same-sex marriages, so perhaps the Bible isn't binding or authoritative for modern Christians. It can't really tell us who God is when it comes to the details. Um, But once they get to a place where the Bible and the church can't tell them who God is, they realize they're worshiping a God that they kind of came up with in their head. And after a while, they realize, well, what's the likelihood that the God of my imagination is even real? Um, So, listen, as I said again, I want my gay friends to have robust relationships with God. Um, But the fruit I see of adopting a progressive sexual ethic is is adopting, is is losing their faith, which makes me really sad. Um, And then if we look at the relationship habits of, of gay people, there's not too good fruit either. Uh, the rates of infidelity are much higher in same-sex couples, and the, the average length of their relationships are much shorter. Um, again, we could have a conversation about uh, a lot of what has to do with that is probably the oppression in society that LGBT people have experienced, right? So how much of that is due to oppression? How much of that is due to some design God has for relationships? I can't answer that question. But I will say that what's been most convincing for me is the bad fruit I've seen in my own experiences in my life. Um, you know, Satan told me for years that if I was just in a relationship with a man, everything would be better. I would get what I was hoping for. Um, and I wish I could have just trusted God that Satan's lies were that, that they were lies, but I couldn't. I had to test it for myself. And my own experience was that romantic relationships with guys weren't everything that I hoped they would be. They were painful, and um, they were a mix of good and bad, but, but there was a lot of broken in there. Um, and while I haven't experienced everything under the sun, I'm not trying to say that authoritatively, I know that I would never find any satisfying with, with a relationship with a man because I've had a relationship with every kind of man I could ever meet. I've, I've not done that. But there's one experience for me that is just about the clearest contrast between sin and beauty that I think I could ask for. Um, I was in a particularly dark place uh, later in college, and, uh, and one time, uh, one of the times that I connected uh, with a guy, um, and, and when we were connecting romantically, uh, despite the fact that I was doing things that mo- the movies told me would lead me to feel most connected and least loved, or, or excuse me, most connected and least alone and, and most loved, um, I felt alone. And then after we stopped, the kind of reality of what we had done set in. And we sat on the floor next to each other, shoulder to shoulder, leaning against the wall, and we started crying. 
both of us. Um, and mixed in with that crying, we're kind of, we've verbalized how we were feeling. We shared how empty that felt for both of us, how lonely we felt, how messed up this world was, and how disconnected we felt from God. How confused we were that God didn't seem to be willing to change this in our lives, yet God seemed to say that we couldn't have these kinds of relationships and they weren't satisfying. We were really frustrated. And in the midst of us sharing these things, I didn't feel alone anymore. I, I felt really connected. Um, it was weird that the kind of romantic connections that Satan promised would satisfy me, well, those failed. But then in really stark contrast to that, the two of us confessing and the two of us crying out to God how we felt in these moments was satisfying and felt more beautifully intimate than anything we had had in the minutes and hours before. So I'm not saying that story alone should be convincing for any of you. But I'm sharing that that was really convincing for me, the bad fruit of, of that in my life and the lives of those around me. But, but even if I didn't have that, even if I didn't have those experiences and I didn't see those things in other lives, uh, I still couldn't convince myself that a progressive sexual ethic is true. Um, the Bible and the church have taught really consistently over the past 2,000 years what Christian marriage is, what God's design for Christian marriage is, and that the only alternative to that is celibacy. Two women or, or two men just can't fulfill God's design for Christian marriage. And then on top of that, we have uh, five or six verses that seem to directly talk about same-sex sexual sin. Now, I'll admit that each of those are in the examples of rape or incest or sex outside of marriage or adultery, right? So I wish the Bible maybe could be a little bit more clear on these topics. But if we look at the evidence found in Scripture and we ask the question, is there more evidence for a progressive sexual ethic or is there more evidence for a traditional sexual ethic, I think we would find significantly more evidence for a traditional sexual ethic than for the, the contrary. Um, to which many of my friends ask, well, why did God even make things this way? Why, is it, why, why does it have to be this way? Why is it true that that is God's best for us? And I don't know the answer to that question. Maybe it's to protect us from that bad fruit I talked about earlier. I don't know. But what I do know is that it's not my job to question God's design and how he put things together. Um, I just got to trust that God knows what's best for me and I've got to obey his teachings. Um, still, and I can't remind us of this enough, few churches are places where people like me can thrive according to a traditional sexual ethic. I'm having to fight day in and day out to create those pathways and those opportunities for family and, and for healthy connection. I'm having to work for that every day. And we can't expect the average Christian to do that. So there's a lot of work that the church needs to do. Mm -hmm. um, but just because the church doesn't do this well doesn't make something bad for me good for me. doesn't change something from being a sin to being something that edifies God. And I think maybe that's the double burden for gay Christians. That the church doesn't know how to love us well yet, and the alternatives culture offers still aren't good for me. That's hard. Uh, and I think we need to be honest about that in the church. So, yeah, I mean, I think that bad fruit, I think not being able to convince myself that a progressive sexual ethic is true, that's the reason why for me I, uh, 
I, I can't be in a romantic relationship with a man, but I think as we talked about before and as even as I shared last week, I've got lots of really close friendships. Yeah. So it's not that I'm missing out on relationship. Right. Um, yeah. Well, I, re- I remember, um, especially back in, the, back in the days when I was in college, which was in the 90s, but I'm not telling you what year. Um, <laughs> you know, we would, we would use terms like gay as... Um, I don't know, ways of making fun of each other, you know. That's so gay, you're so gay, you know. It was always this way of, of sort of, we felt like we were, believe it or not, almost in line with God's will by um, using those kinds of words and that mentality um, in such a dehumanizing way. And, and, I, and I really am sorry about that. Um, not that you ever were privy to it, but still, it's... Uh, I think it's a pattern of behavior that the church has had, not just in that sample, but I mean, I'm just giving an example I'm sure many of you can relate to. Um, the approach that the church has had towards the gay community, um, it's filled with confusion, but it's also filled with condemnation. It's filled with, uh, in my opinion, so much fear that you have Christians, I would include well-meaning Christians, sure. saying and doing things that are destructive and stupid and and really they're not creating any type of bridge or helping us go forward and i am sorry about that but i can also understand um and you've mentioned this before that um you have friends and whether they have that perception firsthand or they feel it from others they have felt that type of resistance from the church or maybe they have felt that the church has kind of pushed them uh out of the picture or has treated them like there's something filthy or ugly or and that kind of thing and i just talked about the imago dei how every person has that image of god in them and yet your friends have not experienced that with church and as a result they've either been pushed completely out of the faith or maybe into what we just described that's that progressive sexual ethic yeah so the the question is this what do you what do you say what do you say to those people who have experienced um, that depth of rejection from the, from the church. Yeah. Um, yeah, I want to paint a, kind of paint that picture a little bit more. Okay. Um, because when I see close friends adopting a progressive sexual ethic or feeling like, or losing their faith altogether, it makes me really angry. And not angry at my gay friends. Um, angry at the church. Because most of these friends followed their church's teachings for a time. They obeyed every mentor. They read their Bible. They prayed. They memorized scripture. And they waited for things to get better. But their loneliness continued. And they still felt disconnected from God. And do you know how their churches responded? They shamed them. They blamed them for the fact that things weren't getting better. Um, And so my friend's loneliness turned to depression, and their depression turned to suicidal ideation. All the while, their churches called them to a traditional sexual ethic and did nothing to help them do it well. So my friends did what they thought they had to to save their life. They adopted a progressive sexual ethic. And after a while, most of them stopped going to church or praying or believing in God. So when I think about these friends, I really get frustrated with the church's response. Look, I don't want to shame you. I don't want to motivate any of you by fear. That doesn't do any of us any good. But I do think we need to look honestly at how the church, what the church has done, take responsibility for that, and then recognize the urgency to offer something different. Um, Some Christians have actively participated in the marginalization of gay people, like you've mentioned, but I think a lot more of us 
haven't done our part to help make the church a place where gay people could actually thrive according to a traditional sexual ethic. And what's the fruit of that? What's the fruit of what some of us has done and then what other of us haven't done? I think that action and inaction, in large part, has led to millions of LGBT people losing their faith. So we've got to do this better as a church because the eternal destiny of people we love is at stake. Um, so to answer a question like, what do I say directly to my gay friends who are in that place who have adopted a progressive sexual ethic or more often than not have lost their faith? I say that, um, I tell them that God loves them, that God hates how this has happened for them. He hates the silence of their churches and their parents that led them to make sense of this alone. God hates the homophobia in the church. God hates the shame and the pain that my friends have experienced, and he understands how hard it is. Um, I tell them that I pray loudly. I beg God that he will have mercy on these friends because he knows how it's been. And I ask God to reach out to my friends through all of this crap in undeniable ways. Um, I really want them to know Jesus. I really want them to have the relationship with God and the relationship with others in the church that I have. Because um, it's, it's, it's life-giving. It's, it's beautiful. Um, and it pains me to see that the way the church has responded to their sexuality seems to have broken that for them. Well, I, I really want to talk, I mean, related to that, I really want to talk about kids specifically. I mean, I'm, I'm a father, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I got two boys and, and a little girl, and, um, you know, growing up, you know, my parents and, and other parents would always talk about, well, you know, have you talked about the birds and the bees, which I think is hilarious because I don't know what that means, and I have bees, and they hate birds, and especially hummingbirds, <laughs> but, uh... My, my point, though, is it's, it's, it's an awkward topic just, sure. just to dive into. Uh, this church has also talked about, you know, sexual purity and, and sexual stewardship in, in terms of we have a, a porn epidemic or pandemic, should I say. Sure. I mean, that, that is just overwhelming in, in, so many, in so many ways. But when it comes to speaking to teens about, about this topic, and last time you were here, you shared, I, I thought, a very m moving um, testimony about you know the things that you've gone through you know in terms of when people uh, understand the same-sex attraction that, that you experience um, their response whether it is absolutely no response whether it's just something they don't talk about or mm -hmm. maybe the the response is a negative response um, considering all of that I mean what is a proper way do you think that we should be talking with our teens regarding this subject and and I'm not sure um, and maybe you can you can address this I'm, I'm thinking of two two sides to that one, one is just talking to our teens in general but mm -hmm. maybe even talking to our teenagers who are experiencing same-sex attraction yeah so that they don't necessarily experience the same type of thing that you sure that you went through as well yeah um, as parents I think and, and you can agree or disagree I think the whole subject scares us to death but I mean what would you say yeah to that so I think the easiest way to, for me to think about this is what do I wish I would have heard before I even knew I was gay? And then what do I wish I would have heard once I shared with my parents? 
Um, yeah, I, I needed to hear my parents and pastors talk about this topic. I needed them to recognize that there are Christians who experience same-sex attraction. Um, I needed them to make clear that people don't choose who they're attracted to. I needed them to let me know that if I were gay, I, I wasn't alone, and I didn't have to make sense of this alone. I think it would have been great for me to hear that if I were gay, there's nothing for me to be ashamed of. That is not my fault. Um, and I think it would be good for me to hear that, uh, make clear that God loves gay people just as much as he loves straight people. God has good plans for gay people and that I wouldn't have to become straight for God or my parents to love me anymore. So I think that's what would have been good for me to hear even before I, I realized that this was a part of my story. Um, you know, maybe, I don't know what age. For me, it was sixth grade. I forget what, you know, numerical age that was. Um, but, I mean, I know, I know some parents would hesitate to talk to 10-year-olds about this, for example. Maybe you're afraid of bringing the idea up. Maybe you're afraid of suggesting the idea. You're afraid that if you talk about it, your children will wonder, well, maybe I'm gay, and they might convince themselves to be gay even if they aren't. I, I hear those fears often. I want to be clear that you, you can't catch being gay from hearing people talk about it. And I know that sounds silly. I, I framed it in a silly way, but, but you can't. Uh, whatever nature and nurture ingredients that are involved in someone developing same-sex attraction or being gay, they are already in a 10-year-old. So nothing you can say or do is going to change how gay they will be. But there is a really big risk of not talking about this. There's a really big risk right. of silence. Right. And point blank, the risk of silence is suicide. Um, gay teens are four times more likely to commit suicide than their peers. Um, and then gay teens who are in an unsupportive Social environments such as conservative churches are 20% more likely to commit suicide than other gay teens. And then another study found that the more important religion is to a gay teen, the more likely they are to commit suicide. So we've got to talk about this because um, it's the lives of our kids at stake. Um, and there's a lot more to, to gain than there is to lose by talking about this early in careful ways. Um, so yeah, that's, that's how I wished I would have heard my parents talk about this, um, particularly before I realized I was gay. Because as I talked about last time, on, on average there's a five-year gap between when a teen first realizes they are gay or experience same-sex attraction and then when they first tell a parent or a pastor. And so we can't wait until teens tell us this is a part of their story to then talk about these things carefully. They've got to hear this before they tell us. And they really ideally need to hear this before they even know this is a part of their story. So that as soon as they realize, I'm gay, they go talk to their parents and they talk to their pastor about this. And they invite you guys into helping them make sense of this part of their life. Because it's a really scary thing to make sense of alone. It was for me. And it was for a lot of my friends. And all of us have wounds from that in one way or another. From trying to make sense of this by ourselves. So, yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that. Um, I know we're getting short on time. I do have some other specific questions I would sure. like to ask. <laughs> yeah. But I, I mean, I'm not wanting to throw you off uh, mm -hmm. or anything. I think there's, 
there's, there's one question that um, you had brought up briefly, and um, I think some of us have perhaps even experienced, and I know that by sharing this opinion, you're not necessarily saying that um, uh, we have to adhere to this, but I am going to ask you this question, and that is, um, should Christians attend same-sex weddings? Sure. But I'm going to get real selfish. Okay. What about pastors who okay. are asked to officiate, right? And once again, I just want to make it, I, I want to make it clear. It's not like whatever you were saying is necessarily gospel. Sure. But I mean, what are, what are your thoughts? Yeah, in, I'll, share, in, I'll share my in that area. Okay. That's definitely a question that people ask often. Um, and I get that the fear of some Christians is if we attend a same-sex wedding, are we doing something wrong? Uh, will God be upset with us for that? And I think it really depends on what kind of wedding we're talking about. And so I want to de describe like two opposite ends of a spectrum in terms of what a wedding is and then talk about how that might inform how a Christian thinks about this. So um, if, the, if a wedding we're talking about, a same-sex wedding, is a wedding that's happening in a church that's being officiated by a pastor, that is a wedding betu between two guys who are Christians or two, between two women who are Christians and they're using Christian vows and they believe that God is joining them in marriage, in Christian marriage, and that God will sustain that marriage. And they're inviting the people in the audience not just to watch it, but they're saying, this is not only a contract between these two women or these two men, but it's a contract between these two people and God and a contract between these two people and the congregation. And the congregation is there to, to witness it and affirm that God is joining this and will sustain this. And they're promising to help sustain this themselves. If that's what's going on, um, I don't think I could be a part of that wedding. I'd probably still come to the reception, um, and because I, I share very frank, or very openly about my story and my beliefs on these topics, I don't think they would be surprised. Uh, so it wouldn't be some you know, controversial conversation. Um, but let me then go to the opposite end of the spectrum. If the two people who are getting married um, aren't Christians, if they're not getting married in a church, if they're not being married by a pastor, if they don't think what they're entering into is Christian marriage, um, and if all they're asking the audience to do is to, to witness it and then celebrate with them afterwards, I would be completely comfortable with going to that wedding. Hmm. Um, and then there's a lot of points in between those two extremes, right? And for me, it's a case-by-case -case basis of, um, of, of where is it along that spectrum and can I go or can I not, right? Because... For a lot of this, um, these people that invite us to their weddings are people we love, and they may be Christian or they may not be Christian, but the way we respond to them, um, because we are Christian, impacts the way they see God, right? And so um, it communicates a lot not to go to someone's wedding. And so uh, what's not just in stake, at, what's not just at stake is whether kind of uh, our conscience is clear with God as whether or not we, we, should, we should be a part of this ceremony. But what's also at stake is the injury we might cause to this couple that we know and the way they see God. So I'm not saying one should all, I'm not saying that the, the, the harm we might cause to someone's view of God always outweighs our personal conscience. But what I'm saying is we've got multiple things to weigh here and it's not simple. So as my answer is to a lot of the questions we've talked about over the past month, it's complicated. Right. Um, that there's not a simple answer. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, last time you were here, we decided to um, 
I say we, I mean we, but I decided uh, to, uh, to make sure that uh, we put an invitation to people on our, on our Facebook page. Yeah. And um, so I, w- I was looking for a, a, a nice little bio with, with your name and, um, and, of course, with a picture as well. And um, so I went on the website, and I was like, okay, how does Peter refer to, to himself? And I clicked on the blog, and the, and the heading of the blog was, I'm a gay Christian. And so I took that, and then I put it right in, in, into the post, and I said, you know, Peter Valk will be here. He's a, he is a, a gay Christian, and, um, and Ethan was great. The, the next day, Ethan's, Ethan and, and Tiffany also, they're like, well, uh, we got some negative response. Sure. <laughs> Sure. So, which I understand, and and I'm not trying to say that it was it was wrong for people to to counter that, right? Sure. Because it's kind of an explosive, you know. Um, it can mean all sorts of different things. So when people, uh, or when you refer to yourself as a gay Christian, maybe you could flesh that out a little bit and help us to understand what what's the view that you're trying to to communicate. I yeah. guess. What, what do I mean by that? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and I'll make clear, uh, me using that language isn't me saying that. Every Christian who experiences same-sex attraction should use the same language. Uh, it's not me saying that you guys, as a church, should be 100% okay with that language. It's, it's the language I use. Uh, and, but yeah, let me share then why I use that language. So um, I don't use that to you know, identify with sin or identify with brokenness in any way. Um, I use those words to identify with others who have had similar experiences as me. People who, because of our shared experiences, particularly understand what's been difficult and what's been beautiful about my life. Um, I think using those words, I, I feel more connected with those people. Um, and, um, and I think as well, it's, it's, it's kind of, it's the word that culture uses to describe someone like me. If I said some of my story and then I asked the average person in Missoula to say, what word would you use to describe me? They would say, you're gay. Even if I said that I wasn't dating a man or seeking out a relationship with a man, they'd say, oh, you're attracted to men, you're gay, that's the word for you. Um, and, and I get that like we've, different people use that word in different ways. When I was growing up, how I heard my parents use that word is that someone who is gay is a man who has sex with man, men and does drugs and probably has an STD. That was what that meant. That was what they told me that word meant. Whereas if you ask a person in middle school or high school today, what that word means, it doesn't mean anything more than a boy who likes boys or a girl who likes girls. Now, yeah, maybe there's an assumption that they will seek out romantic relationships with those people that they're attracted to, but they also assume that all of us are seeking out romantic relationships with the people we're attracted to. So that's not unique to that word gay. Um, so, but I use kind of that word missiologically that I want to use the word of culture because I don't want that to be a, to be a barrier to conversations, particularly with those who are not Christians or particularly with those who are, who are Christian but have a different um, eth- sexual ethic than me. Um, because the alternative, using kind of that language of same-sex attraction, comes with its own baggage. Um, it's associated with the kind of the ex-gay movement, the pray the gay away movement that promised people that if they went to enough uh, counseling sessions or enough uh, retreat weekends, that they would be healed of their same-sex attraction and they would become straight and they could marry someone of the opposite sex and everything would be great. Um, and, and I think there's some, some destructive promises theologically and, and psychologically in that. Mm. So if I'm around a gay person, particularly a, a gay person who is older than me, and if I use the words same-sex attraction to describe myself, alarm bells go up for them 
that I'm someone who might hurt them, that I'm someone who might say something that will hurt them. So, so, I, so, I, so that language, same-sex attraction, is, is not, we might think, oh, it's just, it, it's self-evident. It's just describing a person who experiences same-sex attraction and doesn't mean anything more. But this word gay, oh, it has lots of loaded meaning to it. And I think I would say same-sex attraction also has a lot of loading meaning to it. No language is just clear and self-evident and simple. And so it's a balancing act as Christians of what language do we use. And uh, the big thing for me is um, language is not the most important conversation when it comes to me doing life with other gay people. And I don't want that to be a barrier to the important stuff. So early on in conversation, uh, I just use whatever terminology the person who's sitting across from me uses. Right. I mirror their language right. as a sign of respect. It's not saying that everything about them or the, the choices they make in their lives or the word they use is are 100% correct, but, it, but it's making sure that language isn't a barrier to the other more important conversations right. that I'd love to have. Um, and, and then later down the road, we may have a conversation about that language and what language I use and why. Um, but you know, for me, what's important is that I am a, a Christian first that who sits on the throne of my life is Jesus and Jesus alone. That when I make decisions about how to steward my sexuality, it is the wisdom of scripture and the wisdom of the church that decides that. Not culture, not my sexual identity label. Um, and, that, but the, and the word gay feels like it fits for me. Uh, and fits for the people who I feel most connected to. Um, so that's, that's why I use that. Yeah. So... We're definitely out of time, which I apologize. <laughs> um, he does have a plane to catch. Yeah. You can ask him questions on the way out, but please be concise. Um, it leaves 15 minutes later this time. Yeah. So oh, I have that, oh, a little, a little more time. All right. So who's got questions? No, I'm just kidding. So um, I really do want us to, to go ahead and wrap up. Um, I, I guess sort of a, a good conclusive question would simply be this. Let, let me just say it's been, um, it's been such a pleasure having you here. You've, you've no idea, and I'm glad we have the res this relationship, and I'm, I'm looking forward to where it's going to continue to lead. Um, what he has guide, guided this church through is what we call a blueprint process, which means that we have looked at the needs, both of our church, of, our, of the community and the culture around us, the needs of parents, the needs of, of um, you know, different Christians, and we've been working on, okay, so then what's the vision look like for that? What's the goal? And then what are the action steps that'll take us there? That's an ongoing conversation. I had a good friend who texted me the last time he was here, and she said, we have to keep this conversation moving forward. That's what this is. And so he's already offered the fact that as we continue to shape this and, and you know, put this together, Peter is happy to return to Montana. We have to buy his plane ticket, but other than that, he's not going to charge us a dime. And, and, and I, I may need that. someone to go skiing with. Okay, well, that, yeah. might be, that might be there. And Coulter's over there. He's ready. So um, anyway, I just uh, I want to say thank you, but then I also just want to give you an opportunity. Is there anything else that you would um, perhaps just want to say or share with, with this church regarding, um, I don't know, your experience or, or this issue in general? Is there anything you would like to, to close with? Um, I'd like for y'all to hear that this is pretty special. The conversations we've been able to have on Sundays, but also the conversations we've been able to have on our Sunday, our Saturday workshops. Yep. Um, you know, I live in Nashville, which is described sometimes as the buckle of the Bible Belt, and, and other times uh, I've said that a lot of the, it's kind of the capital of the religious industrial complex. Hmm. There's a lot of religion in Nashville. Yeah. 
There's a lot of uh, infrastructure for the church in Nashville, and that makes it very resistant to change. Sometimes that's a good thing, sometimes it's a bad thing, but it's really hard to find a church in, a, in, in, in the, the South, in, in deep cultural Christianity, that is willing to have these conversations well. Um, so I, I think you guys have something to be proud of. Are these conversations easy? Uh, no. Are they uncomfortable? Yes. And, and are, we, are we walking a, a, a really narrow path between trying to speak with love and then speak carefully from Scripture? Yes, and that's really difficult sometimes. Um, but I just, I, I think you guys can give yourselves a pat on the shoulder that um, there's not a lot of churches who are willing to do this. And, um, and I think that's good fruit of, of your faithfulness. Yeah. So I just want to thank you guys for that. Yeah, well, thank you. Can we give it up for, for Peter? So, um, thanks so much. Yeah, thanks. I, I give you, actually, I want to give you a hug. Is that right? <laughs> thanks, man. Um, just want to say real quick before we close out, just a couple announcements. I uh, had mentioned to you that we are going to be having a support group for those who are struggling with the issues surrounding uh, sexual stewardship. I've had a number of conversations with people, both male and female. There will be two groups that will be started, but it's going to be started in November. And so I originally was hoping for the end of this month, we simply don't have the time and we don't have the resources yet to start at the end of this month. We're going with November 21st. Yeah, but that's right before Thanksgiving. I know, but that's when we're going to start. It's going to be on Wednesday nights, probably at 7 o'clock. We'll give you the place for that. Um, and that's uh, a program that we call Burn the Ships. You can find it at burntheships.org. Um, so that'll be on Wednesday nights at, on, on the 21st. Also, go ahead and put in your calendars, in your little Google calendars, iPhone, whatever, February 22nd through the 23rd. That is a conference that we are, um, we have a large responsibility of, of, of hosting, but it's going to be hosted by a number of churches together. But it's called the Pure Desire Ministries Conference. They called it the Pure Desire Ministries University, and their literature has this word university on the top. And it looks like the University of Montana is putting something together. And I'm like, ah, I don't think that's what we're communicating. So, they're redoing all of the, the promo materials, and they're going to get that to me this week. But make sure that you have that on your calendars, February 22nd and the 23rd. That is the Pure Desire Ministry uh, weekend. Once again, thank you for all that you've done for us. Um, I'm going to go ahead and close this out in prayer, and then you are dismissed. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for being willing to walk into uh, areas that are very dis uncomfortable. Um, and at the same time, I feel like there's a lot of joy and a lot of peace that's come from it. So thank you for all that you've given today. Gracious God, thank you for this church. Thank you that we have members here that are willing to step into those difficult places, into the, the places that require the light of Jesus Christ, require clarity. And at the same time, Lord, give us, give us humility. Give us the ability to look at what we have created with this body. Is it a place to thrive? Is it a place for... Uh, anyone who is experiencing same-sex attraction to thrive? What does it mean to be inclusive? In what ways have we pushed back? In what ways have we been destructive? Lord, help us to learn how to build bridges. Help us, Lord, to know what it means to be the, the feet, the hands of Jesus, to have a heart that is inside of us that yearns not only for you, but yearns in, in, in how to love people the people that we may not understand. Thank you so much for this church. Be with us this week. 
It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.